Hey there, welcome to our third ever Sling Talk. We're Slingshot, a machine learning platform for developers, and we'll be talking through questions machine learning developers and folks in our team are asking. Today, we're gonna to be talking about why LLM inference speed is so slow and what the future of inference for large models will look like. We're gonna talk about a number of topics. Feel free to join the conversation and let us know what you think. So let's jump in. So Guy, Today, we're going to be talking about LLM inference speed. Large language models are language models that are large. A language model is any model that's trained to take in an input sequence, so just a bunch of generally text, and predict what the next token in the sequence would be. So at training time, you give a large corpus of text, just a big body of lots and lots of text. The model at any given point will take in, let's say, a thousand words and predict what the next word will be, and then use the thousand and one words and predict what the next one will be. And then when we run inference, which is like when you use the model, you give it some input sequence of text. It uses that input sequence to predict the next token. And then not only does it predict it, but it takes the prediction, uses it as if it was part of the text to then generate the next one. So in terms of computational time, LLMs are transformer models. The computational complexity of inference is quadratic in terms of the input length. What that means is that if it takes one second to process 10 input tokens, generate one output token, if I double that 10 and now I have 20 input tokens, theoretically, it would rather than twice as much complexity, it would take four times as much complexity to process 20 input tokens. Talking practically, the biggest LLMs these days are GPT 3.5 and GPT 4 from OpenAI. There are a bunch of other closed source models that are like second place. And then you have the open source GPT models like Llama 2. How fast is LLM in Frinsky? Like just in general, if you're like running a Llama 2 or something like that, like how long does it take to generate outputs and stuff? Yeah, I think like from normal use cases on a GPU available on GCP, you could get like 100 tokens generated in 30 seconds, like something like that. It can vary depending on the configurations you use, there are several strategies to make it faster, right? Some of them sacrifice accuracy, some of them less so. But I would say that's roughly the order of magnitude. If you have different hardware, you can have different speeds even. Like it's technically possible to run like Llama on your phone, but it's not going to be very fast. I don't even remember what it was, like one token per second or something like that. That's not uh, it's not very... So one token yeah. per second means like if we're trying to generate 100 tokens, it's going to take two minutes, which probably yeah. isn't okay if you're trying to use like Siri on your device or something, right? Yeah, exactly. On the other hand, like I use to... GPT-4 all day long every day and it seems fine to me in terms of its speed, right? Like it, I'm waiting for it, but it streams yeah. the inference. Like I can see the text as it comes in. It's about the same speed as I can read it. Do you think that yeah. like GPT-4, I don't know, is it fast? Is it slow? Do you think they're being thoughtful about like how fast they can make it? They definitely have a lot of beefier machines, right? Like using N100s and whatnot to make it faster. But I think it's also a UX thing. So the fact that they stream the response rather than just waiting for it to be complete and then showing it all at once, that helps a lot. And as you said, like you're not going to read the entire text in one shot. You actually take time to read every word. So it's, it makes sense and it gives you a feeling that the generation is faster, even though like it might be the same amount of time to generate the entire response, but the experience feels better. You can also do interesting stuff related to the actual generation. So if you see that the response is not going well in the middle of it, you can just cancel it and like restart it or like generate a new one, right? For instance. Oh yeah, I do that all the time with GPT-4. I just like pause and I'm like, I need yeah. to change my prompts. Can you talk to me about specialized exactly. hardware? So I know that large language models, of course, run on specialized hardware. Why is that? Basically, like the way 
we started doing machine learning like on CPUs because it's general purpose. You can run any sort of computation there. But the fact is that it's very slow. And the way that CPUs parallelize stuff was not very adequate, or it would take you to a certain point in terms of speed. And then slowly people realized that you could actually use a GPU, which is very efficient in computing matrices operations to make it faster, essentially. And then as AI grew as a field and it became more important, more prevalent, people started developing like specialized hardware that not only makes the graphics operations that related for matrices faster, but like actually the tensor operations and all the machine learning operations faster. So we're actually concerned this as a first class type of program. So now you have a lot of different specialized hardwares. GPUs, I would say, still the most common one, even for enterprise. But you have like definitely specialized chips. I don't know what to call them, like the Cerebrus one, or Google has TPUs. Tesla has their own variant of it. It seems like a lot of people are actually developing specialized hardware to be faster for these very specific use cases. In the other hand, you sacrifice generalizability. So you can only run these types of programs fast. Sometimes you can run other types of programs, but it would be slower. Or sometimes you can't even run other types of programs at all. Actually, very interesting that the M1 architecture stuff, like everyone seems to be putting neural cores on their phones and their laptops. It's actually creating this interesting ecosystem for edge devices. So you can actually have language models and other types of models that you can run on directly on, on device, which would not only make it faster, but also like be better in terms of privacy because you don't have to send your data anywhere. I know you have a lot of thoughts on edge inference, but yeah. Uh, yeah, why does edge inference matter? Why not, like, if I want to run Llama, I know it's going to, you yeah. just told me it's going to take like 30 seconds to generate 100 tokens, and that's on like a serious cluster. Why would I ever bother running it on my phone? Well, I guess like if you can actually make it faster or like use UX to make the experience better for the user, it would be worth it. And from the company's side, it's also beneficial in terms of cost because now like you're just offloading all of this cost to the edge devices. And there are several strategies you can actually take there, but I feel like at least some of the computation will be offloaded. Can you imagine, for instance, like on the when you're typing stuff on your keyboard, right? I'm sure it's not like a huge language model, but there's something there, like something clever to try to predict the next word. So if with every keystroke, you actually had to send down the information and receive back the prediction, like that would be incredibly slow and probably not very useful. It's just going to be like a difference of use cases where like some use cases yeah. make sense to run on device. And especially as models get better, as they get or able to achieve really cool stuff with smaller models. And then do you think at some point, like the latency, like you were talking about with keystrokes, the latency like adds up and it actually becomes impractical to run on the cloud? Yeah, definitely. So keystrokes, I think, is a perfect example for that because latency matters a lot. You want the instant reaction when you press the key. I would say like something similar that we've seen some companies do is like video games, right? Like just render everything on a data center and then just have your controller send the inputs. That didn't work out very well, but maybe for models, it's a little different. So there's definitely use cases in which I think edge devices have like an advantage. If you followed like Mighty, which was trying to say like, oh, yeah, yeah, they browser. just rendered, yeah. And yeah. it just didn't work. I don't know if it was the technology, yeah. though. I don't know. Maybe it's like internet latencies or something. Something to do with 5G will get us there. I don't know. But I have to Probably. wonder, like, mm -hmm. which use cases. There are probably some use cases where on-device inference is valuable. Do you think that, yeah. I think, like, when we talk about big tech and AI, Apple's definitely been, like, left out. Do yeah. you think that Apple's relying on device inference for their future of AI? I think they're in a weird situation in which, like, they... I haven't seen public models from them or like any sort of avatar, not public, but like public facing models, right, from them. But at the same time, like they are actually like developing really good hardware to run these models, even on like MacBooks and iPhones. So yeah, they're definitely interested. And I think at this point, 
pretty much every company is. But I think there's definitely a future. Another class of problems or, or tasks that would be beneficial to run on edge is like when you're offline. So if you are in a tunnel or you're in a foreign country, you lose internet access or something and you want to translate, right? You want some live translation happening there, you would be able to run it on your phone. Live translation is an interesting one because I think like Google Translate does let you download stuff to run like live translation. Yeah. And then they also tell you like, hey, it's going to be a lot worse than our normal online models. Maybe that's the future. Maybe it's like Apple creates some like shittier version of LLMs. Or maybe there's also I know that hierarchical mentality where like maybe you have an on device model do the easy stuff. And then like in cloud models, do the hard stuff. And like when you lose internet, you only do the local stuff. It's just interesting yeah. to frame that in terms of like the benefit of like how much would our compute go up if everyone in the world contributed their device to do their own inference. On the other hand, if I understand these orders of magnitude, if you're running a large language model, you need generally like minimum, I don't know, two, four, eight, A100 GPUs. We're talking like big GPUs, right? Which means you're talking about yeah. five, ten thousand dollars worth of machines to run a single inference request. Obviously, smartphones have nowhere near that level of power and don't seem to be on that direction yeah. anytime soon. Plus, if you have ten thousand dollars worth of machines running an inference request, but only for 10 seconds. That seems economical. If you had to buy that and use it and have it off, except for when you're asking requests, that sounds crazy. Yeah. But I would definitely have to say, at least like on the laptop range, we are getting closer to a, a world in which that's possible, right? Like I've seen people run Llama, like for coding as a coding assistant, right? Locally on their laptop and just generally as a ChatGPT replacement locally. I would say the experience is not there yet, right? GPT-4 yeah. is still, I think, the best experience. But in terms of speed, it's usable. You're going to complain about the speed, but it's going to be usable. It's not like, oh, wow, this is a complete garbage. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as models get better, though, won't it look more and more like garbage? Meaning like if GPT-5 comes out yeah. more better models online, and those are probably going to be big, it's probably going to be, I don't yeah. know the numbers, but I imagine GPT-4 is running across somewhere between 100 and 1,000 GPUs for every single inference request. Like as you get these massive, better and better models, might it just be that like OpenAI can upgrade their GPUs and increase the number way faster than you could buy a new laptop? Yeah, that's probably true. But I think it's also true that models are getting more efficient. So like we have Xformers, we have flash attention, we have all of these nice tricks uh, that people are coming up with to make inference faster, make uh, even training faster. But basically running a model is cheaper, not only because the compute is getting better, but it's getting more efficient at running computations, right? I think Which I agree turn, with you that yeah. like on-device inference, mm -hmm. inference is interesting, but I also kind of wonder if it's specific use cases. It's cool to watch like GBT for all mm -hmm. is a crazy cool advancement that you can run really powerful model on your device. You have like Llama CPP as like a library optimizing on device inference. But it still seems like if you're taking GPT-4 and trying to run it on device, it seems like maybe that's just the wrong use case. Sort of like you were saying about like, I don't know, Mighty or running gaming on the cloud. Those are things that are fine to run on your laptop. Similarly, maybe GPT-4 yeah. is something fine to run on cloud. But then you get stuff like security cameras, maybe, you know, like security cameras process so much data, it might just be infeasible or absurd to run compute for that on cloud. Plus, like... If you have a security camera and it's running compute 24-7, you might as well buy the compute, right? Because it's literally running all the time. And I think maybe things like security camera or any camera use case, self-driving cars, maybe too, like you will want to see on-device inference because it economically makes sense. On the other hand, where inference is extremely sparse, you'll want to use cloud for inference. What do you think of that? I would say, especially like if your use case doesn't require immediate response, then yeah, that's fine. Like if it's GPT-4 levels of speed is fine, then yeah. It'd probably make more sense to have like a server somewhere constantly on and then just serving multiple people, right? But what if you had like 
a server, like less powerful than a data center, obviously, but like a local server, maybe on your house or your neighborhood. And then your requests are actually forwarded there. So it's kind of in the middle of on device and on the cloud. So maybe we're just, are you just that, talking about like a decentralized edge cloud? So I think there's like a huge vision for the world. Of what if instead of having three clouds, we had many, and especially with GPUs, when you care about latency, you want edge. When you care about throughput, you want cloud. And then there's this question of like, is there a hybrid? Or like, if we don't care about latency, maybe GPUs change the way that the cloud looks. I think this is like a fascinating topic. Mm. Maybe GPUs will change the way the cloud looks because you care a lot less about internet speed, but you care a lot about GPUs. And so does that mean that yeah. anyone can like create a cloud by just having a GPU, basically plugging it into the internet and then letting you run inference there? Interesting. Yeah, that could be the case. I can see also like a lot of applications don't require real-time responses, right? So if you just want to summarize something or if you run a report or if you want some simple classification, it doesn't have to be real-time. So these would probably benefit if you're using a language model underneath it, it would probably benefit from running on cloud. Yeah. Plus they're like clever things you can do if you share the model amongst different users. Wait, sticking with that though, running mm -hmm. inference, if you did have a decentralized cloud though, privacy becomes more of a problem, right? Not less because we don't mm -hmm. have a way to like anonymously run a forward pass. So that means if you're sharing with your neighbors you love and trust, but you run an inference request, all of them can read exactly what your inference request was to the dot. And you have no way of hiding that request from them because they need to be able to, even if you end to end encrypt it, they need to decrypt it before passing it to the model. So Basically, it sounds like if we're talking about privacy and LLMs, you either trust or you don't. And if you do trust the LLM, then you might as well use a cloud. And it's probably easier to trust a cloud provider. If you don't trust, it needs to be your own. But it doesn't sound like there's this weird middle ground where you like somewhat trust, you know? I would say there's like in the academia space, like right now, you have like fully homomorphic encryption, which allows you to actually do that, to do forward passes with encrypted data, and then only you can decrypt it. But I think like it takes a serious hit on uh, speed. So I don't think it would be ready or as far as I know, it's not ready for production use right now. Let's talk about the latency throughput trade-off when it comes to LLM inference speed. So let's just going back to the basic terms, latency means how long it takes for you to get your response, whereas throughput is how many responses a model can process at once. With a model like an RNN, you have really good, theoretically, you have really good throughput and really poor latency because the model has to process sequentially the entire input, but it puts relatively little processing power into each inference request. So theoretically, if you imagine you have an equally powerful RNN and transformer running on an A100 or something like that, if you had a thousand A100s available to run your LLM, you can either put those thousand A100s towards processing a thousand requests completely separately, each A100 processing one request, or you could take the thousand requests, treat them sequentially, each one running on a thousand A100s all at once. And in that case, like potentially, if your model is really slow to run, you would have like higher late, sorry, lower latency, but also your throughput goes down as well. It is a trade-off in a sense. I think batch size is the other factor here though, which is how high the batch size are you able to operate? Because maybe then you can choose a different number. Like if we use a thousand A100s, we could process 10 requests at once. Other relevant yeah. factor here is context length, right? Yeah, so as context length increases, your inference time also increases by a lot, at least uh, initially. And I think like if you actually take into consideration batching, it makes the problem especially hard because now you sort of expect that batching would only be efficient if they have relatively the same number of tokens. Otherwise, you would have like a lot of mismatch and a lot of wasted computational powers. 
Uh, I'm not sure if that's actually something you can, like, it's not a real problem, right? Like, if it is true, let's say I'm just making up here that the length of context usually forms like a, a normal curve, for most requests, it would be fine. But then you have like the extreme cases in which you would have like slower speed, basically. So if this is true, if batching is really valuable, there's also just GPU utilization. Does this all point towards yeah. large companies having a crazy huge advantage when it comes to large model inference speed? So basically, if you have OpenAI getting a million requests a second or whatever the numbers might be, you know, just big load, mm. they can be really thoughtful about smart batching, which requests do we batch together. They can parallelize across tons of GPUs, but with a substantial batch. And their utilization is going to be quite high. So they don't have to worry about scaling up and scaling down GPUs. Does that just mean that like large organizations have a huge advantage? I think initially, yes, but in the long run, no. And you can see that happening with basically any technology that we had. Right. So right now, smartphones are better than your supercomputers from like 20 years ago or even further back. So I feel like the data centers that we have today and all of this computational power is enough to run, let's say, whatever applications we're able to run today with like GPT-4 level of uh, accuracy or like whatever metric. So in the future, we will have smaller devices or like more powerful devices that will be able to run GPT-4. And granted, GPT-4 won't be the state of the art anymore, uh, but it's still enough to solve a lot of problems. So for a lot of problems, you would be able to run on your local device. So I think right now there's definitely this moat, but I don't think it will last forever. And I'm not sure like think, how, how this transition wait, do will you happen. Think that, <laughs> are you saying you think GPT-4 will be something that could run on device in 20 years? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, probably even less than that. Yeah. That's crazy. That's exciting. I think there are definitely some advantages right now from scale, but the degree of those advantages from scale are kind of hard to estimate, right? Like, and it does seem like part yeah. of this just has to do with like, if you are running very few inference requests, then it might be pretty costly to have your own base model that you're running yeah. on your own. But then there might be some critical yeah. mass where like, as long as your requests are like smooth enough, it's fine and it's cost effective, even if it's not perfectly as effective as OpenAI, but it doesn't matter because OpenAI is taking a cut off the top and you don't have to take that cut off the top if you host yourself. Like on Slingshot, we do serverless inference and we have a lot of technology for auto scaling. We're definitely not open AI. And that does mean that like if you're running three requests a day using your own base model, it's going to be a little crazy because we still will have to like scale up and scale down the models. Like that's fine. That's your choice. But if you do have some base level of requests where you're kind of expecting people are going to mainly be making requests between 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. And like during certain hours of the day, that request volume will go up. Those kinds of normal expectations mean that it still can be economical, but there definitely will be some thresholds where like if you're making below a certain number, if you're making less than 10 requests a day, almost certainly it's going to be way cheaper to not have to host your own model. Yeah. So speaking of which, one of the big questions there is like, how much more expensive is it to host multiple models? It'll be in the same kind of category. If more request volume amortizes the cost substantially, then hosting GPT-4 is really efficient because it's one magic base model that works for everyone in the world. But then what's the scale here? Like if you have a company that has 100 use cases and they're hosting 100 base models, is that going to make inference way more expensive for them? I think like traditionally, yes, that would mean that you would have 100 different models, right? So back in the day, you would have to have separate inferences or like at least offload and reload the other model if you want to reuse hardware. But nowadays, that's not necessarily the case because you have uh, lots of different approaches that can make this process very quick and actually reutilize most of the model. 
So for instance, if you're just using something like some approach like GPT-4 and you have your own custom version of GPT-4, let's say Bloomberg GPT, for instance, you could actually do all of the zero shot or prompt engineering that you would do on GPT-4, but just on your custom model. So in that way, it scales to any task or most of the tasks that you want to do. And you can also use prompt, uh, prompt tuning. Sorry. Before... Yeah. There are other approaches, but yeah, just on this one, I think the foundation model concept makes a ton of sense, right? Like this was, in some ways, OpenAI wanted to push on like there will be one magic foundation model. But I think we've seen with our customers the excitement around having their own foundation model. And then you do get like, we're going to have 100 use cases, but we're going to have one foundation model for all 100 use cases. And so costs aren't astronomical and our models are going to be way more exciting, way more interesting, way better off the bat because they're trained on our data. You were going to say, like, once you do have your own company's foundation model, is that enough to do all of your use cases on one foundation model? Yeah, well, depending on the use case, you might need something more specific or in order to achieve better accuracy, you might need to do some additional training, right? And in that regard, you can do several different things. You can actually do prompt tuning, which is actually using gradient descent to find the optimal prompts for your task. And this will not actually yield tokens you can type into your prompt, but it will be like virtual tokens, like vectors, like the representation that the neural network actually sees. And these will make your uh, accuracy go up, for instance, on a given task. And the good thing about these things is that the base model is still the same, right? You're just giving it a different type of input. It is still completely the same model loaded on the device you're using for inference. So you don't have to change anything there. So it still scales. In that regard, like if you're able to get away with prompt tuning, that is really powerful because essentially reduces the cost tremendously. It's like literally you have the same cost for any number of tasks that you can manage to prompt tune to an adequate uh, efficiency or uh, metrics. So So, this is the thing you were telling me about, like, you know, if I train my foundation model on all of my emails or something like that, all of my texts, all my WhatsApp, whatever, then I can, rather than like then training the model to generate emails, I could just prompt tune it to create a new concept for the model. Like, for example, write a Daniel summary. And because it's seen my writing, you can actually like train it to now summarize a document, not just summarize it, but give like a Daniel summary and train the model to learn what a Daniel summary means. And then also have it write a Daniel email. But instead of Daniel, this would be like a couple tokens that you train it where it invents essentially a new word in its vocabulary that represents the task, which could be like writing a Daniel summary, writing a Daniel email, whatever it might be. Yeah, exactly. I think the lines start to get a little blurry of what constitutes the model and what not. In a way, you can say like, oh, you're just finding an optimal instruction set, right? You're telling the model what to do in words that aren't even English, but it's just like the input that is more efficient. But at the same time, you can argue that like, since these are not interpretable anyway, it's just like a token. You're just giving like ad hoc weights to the model that it can use live for that specific task. So yeah, it's a very interesting concept. <laughs> and it's a technique I think that a lot of big companies are using, right? Like, so if you're using, I'm not yeah. 100% sure of this, but this is what I've heard. Like if you're using now a lot of Google's new features built on top of BARD, it's not just prompt engineering with BARD like normal people do when they're using OpenAI. They actually do train the model and they train it using prompt tuning. So they can use one giant base model and they might have like a spreadsheet model that is actually prompt tuned to generate certain types of spreadsheets. So it's not just that they write a prompt with like a hundred different rules, but they actually create these new tokens for the model. And I think the other big benefit there is on generalization, right? Like that models. And then another big potential benefit is that if you do have a large model like BARD, pre-trained on tons of information on the internet, fine-tuned on a specific data set, you don't want to lose the power of BARD. You don't want to lose that generalization ability that it knows so much. And so prompt tuning is just introducing a few new weights. It's way less likely to lose some of the information that BARD has already encoded. It's really just adding some direction in what the model does rather than having it focus too much only on one narrow task. 
And I guess the other approach is Laura. Do you want to talk about like yeah. what Laura is? Yeah. So Laura is an extension of an or like a specific uh, implementation of what you call adapters. And the idea is that you can have well, if you start from a base model and you're going to fine tune it, you're going to start with a set of weights. And by the end, you're going to have another set of weights. And since you have the same shape, you can compute the difference from one to the other. So the idea with adapters is that if you instead just store this difference, you can actually just add it up to the base model and then you have your new model. So the idea is that you can change adapters for the same base model by simply subtracting and adding the new adapters, but still keeping the weights from the base model. And then Laura specifically comes up and says, well, if models are over-parameterized and meaning like they have so much more parameters than they have been trained on, that you can actually like throw a little bit a little of them away in a clever way and it'll be fine. You can actually train a way less parameters, still keep the shape, right? But train way less parameters. So your files are now instead of gigabytes, it's like megabytes, which is incredible and makes loading it a lot faster as well. So you using Laura or the adapters idea, you can just still keep the base model mostly intact for in a way and then just like switch the adapters depending on which task you're doing and while this is actually more costly than just doing like prompt tuning or prompt engineering this can sometimes also give you better performance the fact that prompt tuning can only take you so far prompt engineering can only take you so far would be an advantage for a method like laura the meaning that you can actually get better performance because you're training more weights you're actually modifying more parts of the model to be specific to your task so what you're saying is like, if I'm a company, I train my foundation model for a specific purpose, or I use a, an out-of-the-box foundation model, rather than creating like a bunch of different models, really, I'm just creating a bunch of different adapters. And each one would be like, this is my email writing adapter. And then if I want to retrain, like if I want to improve the model, I can just improve the foundation model and then improve these adapters. But at inference time, all I'm doing when I run like many models for inference, I might actually be able to kind of combine all the costs into one inference cost bucket, basically, like how many inference requests am I making? And then I can have each request just routed through a different adapter. Yeah, I guess that, that would be possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do the inference step with the adapter merged or not into the base model. Not merging it would make it a little slower, but depending on how you bucket or batch your requests, that will be actually more efficient for everyone in aggregate, right? Like the amortized speed or something. So yeah, you can definitely do that. So I know you've done some research on LLM inference speed optimizations. So let's jump into that topic for a sec. One big area there is, is around KV caching. So if I understand, basically, if I use, let's say, ChatGPT, I'm having a conversation and the model is doing computation at every step. So if I pause and then read the response, type in my response, and it takes me a minute, do models actually like preserve some of the computation from the beginning of the request and then reuse that later on? The first time you run, you actually have to process all of the tokens, right? So all of the input tokens are processed. But since you're generating a token at a time, and the way that the attention mechanism works for GPT models, meaning that they only look back and not forward, this means that you can actually preserve a lot of the computation that you already did. So when you're adding a new card, when you're trying to predict a new token, right, you can already keep a lot of the computed values from your previous runs and only compute the new ones for that are relevant for this new token that you're predicting right now. And then this makes a lot more efficient, right? Because now you're essentially skipping all of the bulky parts. You're just predicting a single token and all of the quadratic attention going from the bulky part of the input is already computed. So you can cache that. This gives like tremendous speed ups. So it is really efficient. I, I can't see any GPT style model that doesn't use this nowadays. 
Are you talking about through a single inference request? So basically, like, if I am generating, if I take in a thousand tokens, generate a thousand tokens, it sounds like it has to do processing of those thousand tokens. Then you add one more token. And then when it generates the second one, it'll take rather than regenerating, doing all the work on the first thousand, it saves that. And it just does the additional work on the one more token. So it'll basically yeah. find the relationship between that one and the first thousand. Let's say it's a thousand bits of work and then it'll generate the second and then it'll have a thousand and one bits of work when it combines number thousand and two with all the original ones. But basically, if it threw away all the work from the first thousand, it would be crazy less efficient. So that's caching exactly. during inference. And then the second question was like for a conversational bot, especially, can you actually save that intermediate work for the next time that we run inference? Yeah, so that's actually a very good question because it is true, you can do that. So the effect doesn't go away. The, the matter of fact is that the human replying is just as if you're just inserting a chunk of text all at once there instead of having the model generated. So essentially what's going to happen is that every time the bot replies, you're actually using KB caching to just generate a single token at a time. So you're just computing the attention from the new token with all the previous ones, but not the previous ones amongst themselves. When you do get input from the user, you are going to have to compute, like since these this brand new input, right? You're going to have to compute this input versus all the previous tokens. But then once again, you can store that. And when it's the model's turns to reply, you're only computing against the new tokens that the model is generating. And this is really powerful. Like it makes chat applications a lot faster. And you can even think like, well, maybe then I could use as a caching layer, something like Redis or something like that, to store these conversations so that multiple conversations can happen at once, then I can I just retrieve them from there so I don't have to recompute this. But if there's one thing that is slower than memory is network. So if your Redis instance is not on the same machine, essentially, you will have to actually make a network request where, in which experiments we have found to be slower than actually just recomputing them. So if you're able to store it in memory, that is very good and you should do that. If not, then you're probably better off regenerating. So KV caching basically definitely necessary during a single inference request. It can be like a huge speed up when you're doing multiple inference requests for the chatbot, but basically it can be really, really hard to implement correctly without leading to like crazy slowdowns. So you, you really yeah. need to be thoughtful and careful in how exactly do you implement KV caching when you have multiple users using a model. Obviously, if it's one user, it's easy. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about future of this space. What are you most excited about LLM inference optimizations? I recently found out about this idea, speculative decoding, which I thought was very clever and interesting. So the idea is basically that when you have a language model predict the next tokens in order to fulfill a task, there are some parts of the, the text that's generating that really requires a lot of processing power. So like GPT-4 levels of computation, essentially, like a large model that really understands a lot of English and a lot of problem solving. But for a lot of these tokens, actually, that's not true. So they're just like filler words or due to the way that the grammar is structured, you can add... They're just there to make the sentence look nice or look like it's English. But these re require way less. So like if you have so a smaller model, like something from even like GPT-2 era, where you basically write English, the sentence doesn't make sense. But grammatically speaking, it's correct. So the idea is that what if I could use a smaller model to predict these easy tokens and the larger model to predict the hard tokens? And that's exactly what speculative decoding does. So the idea is that the slow part for language models is actually the memory loading. So so when you take it from the VRAM to the actual registers that the hardware is going to use to compute, that's the slow part. But if you're actually computing a batch, so for instance, instead of computing one token at a time, you're computing like 10 tokens at a time or even more, you can actually increase the speed a lot. So the idea is that if you have a GPT style model, you have, you're kind of bounded by the fact that you don't know what comes next. So you have to generate them one at a time. 
But if you instead just generate them one at a time with a smaller model, which would be faster, and then just pass them all at the same time to the larger model, the larger model would be able to compute them all in parallel, which would make it a lot faster. It would be basically the price of doing it with a single forward pass. It's not exactly that, but basically. And then what you do is that sometimes the tokens that both models predict are going to be the same, in which case it's great because you can just re keep reusing. At a certain point, the tokens will diverge. So the, the large model will predict something that the, the small model didn't predict. Uh, at that point, the history of your tokens is different, so you can't use any of the next generations, but that's okay. If you're able to generate from the previous tokens a lot of the text, that's probably okay, and you just regenerate the ones after the mismatch happens. I know there was a Google paper on this a while back where they showed that you can kind of use the depth dimension of the model. So the yes. model has like stacked decoders and you can kind of treat that as like a refinement step. So first the model tries to generate using like one simple part of the model and maybe like in layer 17, there's like the Harry Potter section. And so for a Harry Potter text and you're like, you know, what, who won the Quidditch World Cup or whatever, and you go through one through 16 gets it wrong, 17 fixes it and gets it right. But then after 17, not much work is really done. This is kind of like the theory, one theory of stack decoders. There was some Google paper a while back, right, where they show that you can try to kind of assess the model's certainty. And if the model's really sure it has the right answer after step three in forward pass, you can just stop, yeah. decode that, keep it, and then move on to the next section. Is that similar to what you're talking about? That's actually a very good paper as well. It is similar. Basically, what you're trying to do is just avoid doing the full computation for a large language model because that's expensive. And in one way, you can just stop in terms of layers. The other one, you stop in terms of time steps, both of which are valid. Maybe there's a way to combine both uh, and we get even better predictions in that way. Not sure I totally understand, though. Let's. I just want to walk through understand speculative decoding. This is new to me. This was the Andre Carpathy thing? I read it from his tweet, yeah, but I'm not sure if he's the one that came up with it. So Okay. But yeah. It's a cool concept. So... so if I'm understanding when you say speculative decoding, you're saying like you speculate what you think the large language model will produce next. And then you decode exactly. based on that guess, which means you might be wrong. And then if I'm understanding, are you essentially saying it's cheaper to verify with the large language model that your guess is correct rather than to actually try to produce? In a way, you're doubling the computation you're doing. So you have two models predict the exact same thing. But the idea is that for the smaller model, this is actually a lot cheaper which means that you can do this process in, in parallel with the large one. When they match, you can just ignore, you can pick whichever one because they match, so it doesn't matter, but like you can just keep using the predictions. But then are, uh, and isn't it, it strictly more work? If you're saying that the small model and the large model literally predict every next token, doesn't that just mean that you do just as much work? Almost. The difference is that the large language model can now parallelize all of its computations. Instead of predicting one token, it's as if it's predicting back on the, let's say, context length. You have all the context length at once, so you can parallelize all of these tokens. And when you're actually generating, that's the slow part, because you're generating one at a time, and you have to wait for the previous one to be done in order to generate the next one. Let's say you're generating five tokens. Instead of generating mm -hmm. all five in the large and small, you first generate five at the small one, and then you pass exactly. all five into the large one. Worst case, exactly. all you really get out is the first token because all the rest, all of it was wrong. Yeah. But you might yeah. also get token number six if all of those five match, for example. So the model, exactly. so it is sort of like a verification process. You can say it's a verification process. Yeah, if it matches, yeah, it's verify. 
it's verifying like that it agrees basically on what the on, so at the end of the day at least exactly. your accuracy won't fall because what you're generating is the same thing yeah. as the large model but you're doing a bunch of wasted computation so i guess the weird observation here and i think this is sort of like the general weird thing about llm inference is about this latency throughput thing that like what you would expect is that computational complexity which is quadratic would actually have to do with inference speed but it doesn't meaning like even though your context length is longer or with speculative decoding you're doing more additional work you save time Time, ultimately, because what is hard about LLM inference is is like not intuitive, right? This is also where the specialized hardware comes in. I think it's like weird to ask why do LLMs use specialized hardware at all? And it sounds like this is the core. That what's really expensive is that you're essentially reading from memory into cache the entire model throughout every inference pass, and that's really freaking expensive because models are massive. When we think about complexity of like what makes an algorithm slow, it's usually not taking into account the hardware that it's running on. And that's actually very important when you're in real world situations. So yeah, definitely like, even if your algorithm is still n squared, if you can scale like the parallel computation by n, then that becomes linear again. Or like, it's just an example, but like, if you can scale that, then yeah, it's worth that's it. That's not usually my, my, true with, uh, with most algorithms though, true, right? Yeah. Like it's more like yeah. it, with algorithms, we often talk about like the constant times the O of n. So it would be like, you know, if it's O of n squared, that might mean that the input is n and it's actually like a million times n squared or something. And the size of the constant yeah. with machine learning is just massive because it's not really a constant. It's actually the model size. And the model size is so big that it sounds, I think that's kind of the big factor that affects the computational complexity, right? That you can optimize mm. compute by taking into account the fact that the model is big. Um, not too sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not 100 sure that's true either. But I, I think that's that's been my yeah. that's been my understanding that you're doing so much matrix yeah. multiplication that it's not just a matter of the input length. It's actually about the model itself, and you can map out how many computations you do. But it's that constant that you can reduce using GPUs, and that's why you would usually say that O of n squared is so much worse than O of n, and yet weirdly RNNs are O of n. Transformers are O of n squared, but transformers are faster. And that's kind of the most unintuitive thing yeah. in the universe for algorithm people coming into LLMs. Yeah, just excited to have LLMs run faster. So we talked about LLM inference speeds. We talked about on-device inference and what to expect there, what to expect from the future of hardware and what different algorithms might look like, how this applies to companies that are trying to decide whether they should use an out-of-the-box foundation model, they train their own, whether they should train many models or use adapters or use prompt tuning. For the future of this space, do you think that we should expect LLM inference speed to just get a lot faster? Does it matter? Oh, yeah. I think it does matter, especially if this is going to be like the backbone of a lot of applications. I don't know if that's true, but if it is, then it's going to matter a lot. And I think like there's a lot of optimizations we can still do. It feels to me that our hardware nowadays is still like, let's say Turing complete, or like it's still too general to try to compute every possible computation or like every possible language model. But maybe we can get to a point where it's like, oh, this doesn't run anything other than GPT-4, but it runs GPT-4 really fast. So something along those lines could enable like incredibly fast uh, inference speeds, yeah. I wonder for the future of this space, if we're gonna start also just talking about throughput then, because right now, a single person only ever really runs one LLM at once. But in the future, if it becomes yeah. a backbone of lots of applications, you might have your Google Home running LLMs, you might have like background worker LLMs that are trying to figure out how to optimize your schedule or your laptop or your yeah. whatever it might be. And if that's the case, then we might start looking economically at numbers like as a parallel to GDP, how many LLM inference 
requests are being made per day in the United States or how much LLM inference is being done in the United States per year, those kinds of metrics. And then it'll be interesting to move from these latency metrics to talk about throughput. Right now, it's all about optimizing latency so your experience isn't terrible, but it'll be really interesting, especially with agents, when latency maybe matters less. And then all of these optimizations become more relevant for how do we optimize throughput? What do we do once all GPUs in the world are being used to run LLM inference and we just ran out? What do you think? How close do you think we are to capacity on GPUs? I don't know. I, I keep reading everywhere that we have a GPU shortage and like hardware is hard to come by now. And <laughs> then other topics for there. another day. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to uh, think about also, just like what specialized hardware will be next, you know, maybe there will be completely different approaches. Google tried out oh, TPUs, yeah. didn't really go very well, but you know, maybe we'll see something exciting there. Yeah. All right. Nice. See you soon. Bye bye. All right. See you. That's a wrap for today. Thanks so much for joining us. If you're an ML enthusiast, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or at hello at slingshot.xyz. We'll be back with more next week.